I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on April 5th, 2022. Episode 60, A Brief History of Western Civilization. This series of episodes is in no way specific or detailed. World history is a long and intricate tale, as is just the history of the West. What the next several episodes hope to do is to identify some, by no means all, key events, people, and concepts that help define the world as it is today as a direct result of our history. It is intended as an overview of where Western civilization has been, where it's going, and why knowing information about our civilization should be valued and encouraged. History is categorized and divided into time periods after the fact. When we speak of ancient Greece or the Middle Ages or the Renaissance, these are not titles that those people who lived in these times in history gave to their own periods. They are created by historians to help us understand historical events and when notable changes in civilization occurred. Just before 3000 BC in Mesopotamia, man began to keep records in writing. Prior to that time, it is clear that man made efforts to record what he saw, thought, and imagined in the form of prehistoric, meaning prehistory, pre-writing, drawings, architecture, sculpture, and other artwork that depicted things more in picture form than in written word. And big changes in the history of man occurred well before they could be recorded in writing, including the development of farming, settlement, and domestication of animals, all that occurred in what we refer to as the Neolithic period, or the Neolithic Revolution. It was not a far stretch from the emerging complexity of man's artwork to the addition to those methods of record-keeping, that of the written word, and the development of the ancient civilizations of Egypt, Greece, and Rome. It was at this point that our history shifts from survival, improved methods of survival, to real thinkers. Reason, logic, philosophy become part of our conscience, and civilization starts to form in a way that recognizes the importance of the individual. For it is individuals who developed these new ways of thinking. It is not a collective spark. It is the ingenuity of individuals. It is because of this different view of the individual that these societies, and most predominantly those of ancient Greece and Rome, are viewed as the building blocks of today's Western world. The world that encompasses those nations that are governed democratically and by the rule of law. 
So what was developed in these earlier ancient civilizations that we rely upon today? Consider the ancient Greek polis. Perhaps dismissed as an irrelevant past government, it gave us the idea that citizens should be able to participate in their government. Citizens elected certain government representatives and generals and were encouraged to take part in government organization and improvement. Though this antiquated version of a democratic government provided the rights of participation only to Athenian-born males, it was the first real acknowledgement that there may be some natural requirement for men to consent to being governed before that government can be considered legitimate. Self-rule was a novel concept, even though we take it for granted today, and it is a hallmark of Western civilization. We have the Greeks to thank for it. The word democracy itself comes from the Greek words for people, demos, and rule, kratos. It is not just this concept of self-governance or governmental participation standing alone that was unique, but that it was also established in a system where a change in government, when sought by the people, could be achieved through a peaceful process rather than through violent revolution. Finding its birth around the 5th century BC, one notable difference between the democracy born in Athens and the United States today is the understanding that with this right of participation in government also came a responsibility, a responsibility and duty to participate. Those Athenian men who chose not to participate were often marked with red paint or fined or otherwise penalized for that failure. But Greek contributions to Western civilization go beyond just this unique form of self-governance. The Greeks contributed to scientific discovery, art, and exploration, providing insight into much of man's nature and how it may differ in different cultures. We were able to learn about how the ancient Greeks operated through the works of three recognized historians, Herodotus, I can never say this, but Thucydides, and Xenophon. In addition, we learned about this civilization as we have many others, through uncovering artifacts, tools, and other creations of the time period. And ancient Greece in term, uh, is a term used to describe the civilization in this area for quite a long period of time that's been divided into different periods by historians. What is clear is that the periods that followed the Dark Ages, identified as the years 1100 to 750 BC, contributed the most to what we now know as Western civilization. Those later periods include the Archaic period, 750 to 500 BC, a time where pottery and sculpture were further refined and political philosophy started to take real root. The Classical period, 500 to 336 BC, when the democratic system fully took hold and Greek society flourished. And the Hellenistic period, 336 to 146 BC, a time when education was valued and much of what still continues as part of Western values were first developed. And it wasn't just Greece. Despite its label as the cradle of Western civilization that contributed to ideals and concepts that persist today, Rome also played an incredibly large role in what we have in forms of government, society, and engineering. Rome may not be the birthplace of democracy, that credit we've given to ancient Greece, but it is certainly a bastion of inventions that allow us to enjoy many of the conveniences of today's modern society. From technology and architecture to literature and language, from law to art, Rome contributed ideas to Western society that formed much of our founders' own understanding of what natural law required for a legitimate government and society to exist. The American judicial system owes much to ancient Rome. The concept of actual court proceedings, a third-party decision-maker, witnesses, evidence, and written laws are all a part of the Roman Empire's contribution to history and to Western civilization. 
this is a legacy that cannot and should not be overlooked. Though the Romans' punishments would be considered barbaric in today's world, that they provided a process to evaluate guilt prior to implementing those punishments was an indication of a humanity still evolving to appreciate the rights of individuals. Of course, the contributions of Rome to Western civilization are not limited to the acts of government or law. Though influenced themselves by the ancient Greeks, Romans created architecture as artwork, building structures that contained non-functional decorative elements that served no structural purpose, but added to the beauty and thus the enjoyment and appreciation others could have of these structures. And the science has certainly gained ground during the time of the Roman Empire, with man's understanding of physics allowing the design and construction of aqueducts, the use of water for energy, and the building of a complex road system. It is this very road system that led to the common refrain, all roads lead to Rome. Coming after civilization started using farming as a means of food production, the Romans added to this activity by developing ways to farm and tools for use in farming that increased productivity. The Romans began to understand the role climate and soil played in whether a crop would be successful, and that tending to plants during the growing season, to include pruning, seed selection, fertilization by manure and other natural substances, and the like, could all add to the crop's output. And no doubt Roman literature and poetry both contributed to our wealth of literature today, and influenced some of the other time period's greatest authors, including Dante, Chaucer, and Shakespeare. And few European languages find their development unconnected to the Latin language of Rome. The Roman Empire was vast, both in time and geography. It existed from 753 BC until arguably into the 500s AD. In those many centuries, Rome captured lands, turned over lands, and developed lands. The fall influencing them all. The fall of Rome may be said to have begun in the 3rd century, also known as the Age of Chaos, when military anarchy ruled in the region for nearly 50 years. As military leaders all jostled for power, assassinations, religious persecution of Christians, revolts, and natural disasters, including plagues and fires, threw the empire into disarray. At one point, prior to the turn of the 4th century, the empire was split into two regions, under Diocletian, with lower-level emperors appointed to oversee each of these two parts. This division of power resulted in a total of four Caesars, known as a tetrarchy. When two of them gave up, gave up their positions, a civil war was the result, and ultimately, Emperor Constantine took over the whole of the West and ultimately the East, somewhat reuniting the empire under a single ruler, ruler yet again. It was Constantine who deemed Christianity the religion of the empire. Emperor Constantine's tenure lasted from 280 to 337. Some years after his rule ended, Julian the Apostate became emperor and attempted to turn the empire away from Christianity, a failure that led to his death in battle. From this point on, the empire never regained any sense of cohesion and rule under a single accepted Caesar. It would not be long after the Huns began challenging Rome and the Vandals were able to plunder the city that the empire officially fell by the removal of its last emperor, Romulus Augustulus. Rome would be in disarray for years as the rest of the world entered what we now refer to as the Middle Ages. A detailed exploration of the Roman Empire would be necessary fully to understand all it contributed to civilization and all the lessons that can be learned from its long and expansive experience. But some of those lessons include the following. Printing money is not economically wise. As Rome was in decline and as its citizens had begun resisting higher and higher taxes, Emperor Nero and his successors made a fatal error. They decided that printing more money that contained less silver and gold was the answer. But what resulted was inflation, as Rome's currency lost value, more of it was needed for necessities such as wheat, and the people certainly didn't appreciate that. This warning is particularly apropos 
as we face a similar three-directional threat just as Rome did, a state of high inflation, high taxes, and a real risk of continued currency value decline. Another thing we might have learned from the Roman Empire, or at least should have, don't let aberrant behavior and the degeneration of norms go unnoticed. Don't assume it is an aberration, as what was once outside the norm may become commonplace before you realize it, and when you do, it will be too late to stop this erosion of morals, standards, and norms. Don't provide military training and equipment to those you cannot trust. The sacking of Rome was accomplished by none other than the Visigoths, many of whom had in fact been trained by the Roman army. And don't assume weaker countries will always remain weaker. Said another way, don't underestimate your enemies. The Parthians, to Rome's east, remained unconquered by them, by the Romans, due in large part to the constant underestimating of this people. And when elected representatives stop making principled decisions, the electorate becomes dissatisfied and ultimately questions the very foundation and legitimacy of the system. This is akin to de Tocqueville's warning that the American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers that it can bribe the public with the public's money. Large empires do not fall overnight. Slow erosions of our culture and institutions are the real threats. Rome proved that. It is inherent on a people, including us as Americans, to guard our nation and not to let it slip away bit by bit, assuming it is too big to fail. In other words, do not become complacent in protecting our systems and founding principles. As Benjamin Franklin warned, and as Rome proved, a nation, in this case America, will be a republic if you can keep it. Following the collapse of Rome in 476, the papacy continued, but Western civilization had taken a hit, with literacy and Christianity bearing a large brunt of this collapse. The Pope did continue to provide some continuity for Christianity, but times were hard. The early period of the Middle Ages, often referred to as the Dark Ages, occurred at this point. It's during this period that the Prophet Muhammad is born in 570, leading to what would become, once he grows to establish it more fully, a constant struggle between Christianity and Islam. Because the Roman Empire had expanded well into what now includes countries such as Turkey, the fall of that empire left power vacuums around the world. It was not just Western Europe that was affected, but the entirety of Europe and parts of what is now that portion of the Middle East located on the Asian continent. With the fall of secular Caesars and the Roman Empire, the Pope is able to acquire greater authority and appoints Holy Roman Emperors, including Pope Leo III's appointment of Charlemagne in 800 AD. As the Roman Empire had also extended to the British Isles, that region is left in search of rulers. It is during the Middle Ages that today's European countries begin to take shape as parts of the fallen empire are broken up through conquest or negotiation. There is a lot that could be covered during this historical period, and everyone should pick up a book or two about it to get a better understanding, particularly of all the conflicts and battles, as a once large empire is now left up for grabs for military commanders and forces, religious leaders and forces, and others. It is, however, what is often referred to as the High Middle Ages, the 11th to 13th centuries, that provide to Western civilization some of the most valuable creations for us today. It is in this time period that the Roman Church experiences a schism that will break into East and West, with the West ruled by Rome and the Pope. And it is during this time period that the Crusades take place, with the first known Crusades occurring in 1099. Understanding the Crusades is critical to understanding many of today's geopolitical and regional conflicts. Start viewing the Crusades under the shadow of the Roman Empire, keeping in mind that most of the holy lands over which these battles would be waged has, had once been held by that empire, and, and the loss of those areas made a big difference in how the people related to one another. 
But with the breakup of the Roman Empire, the world was left with an emerging, but not yet as powerful, Europe. The Byzantine Empire, that had once been the eastern part of the Roman Empire, and the Islamic Empire of the Middle East and Africa. During about a 200-year period, eight different crusades were undertaken that pitted Christians against Muslims in a fight for land containing holy sites important for both religions. And in the center of it all lay Jerusalem, still a central point of religious conflict affecting today's international relations in that part of the world and elsewhere. As the Middle Ages continued into the late Middle Ages, more conflicts among the nations of Europe focused attention back home in the West, including the Hundred Years' War between England and France that began in 1337, when Clay writes over the area of Gascony in southern France, then ruled by England, and at a time when the King of England was attempting to claim he was the rightful King of France, those two nations found themselves in conflict. It's during this war, that early on seemed all but lost by France, that the well-known Saint Joan of Arc is said to have rallied the French to regain ground and energy for the French effort. Though the Middle Ages were fraught with dangerous elements, from war and persecution to plagues and food shortages, it is this period that then gives birth to one of the celebration and great advancements, the Renaissance. And it is the Middle Ages that gives birth to one of the documents that served as an influential guide to our founders' drafting of the United States Constitution, the Magna Carta of 1215. Facing a rebellion, King John of England was finally forced to capitulate to demands being made by some of his noblemen, who believed they were being mistreated by his rule. King John, who had had a challenger when he succeeded the prior king, King Richard I, also known as King Richard the Lionheart, had been weakened by the less-than-clear line of succession, his loss of English territory to France, as well as a dispute he had with the Pope. Seeing no alternative given the weakening of his power, King John agreed to a number of rights and privileges for his citizens, and put those rights and privileges into a written document, setting up the rule of law in England. Though originally not achieving what those who had negotiated with the king had hoped, revised versions of the Magna Carta, with the last being in 1225, proved to have staying power, and are credited with forming the basis for today's English common law, a common law that advised our own founders in not only the formulation of the Constitution, but in the drafting and passage of any number of laws through the states. Though many events of significance occurred during the Middle Ages, the drafting and signing of the Magna Carta is a critical event to America's own founding, and an understanding of the religious feuds during this period are a key to understanding anything going on today in the Middle East. Yet, as the world came out of the Middle Ages and entered the Renaissance, less focus was turned eastward to Asia and Africa. And there were cultural lessons to be learned from the Middle Ages. For example, family is important. Socialization, education, and protection come from traditional family units and have through most of Western civilization's history. It is for this reason that attacks on traditional family units threaten so much harm. As humans, we are not set up to raise children in large communities. Contrary to Hillary Clinton's proposition, it does not take a village. It takes a family. Growth and consumption for growth and consumption's sake alone may cause harm. Whether it's borrowing too much in student loans or going into debt for a new car you don't need, the Middle Ages understood the risk and actually implemented regulations to help avoid them. Though few, including myself, would ever accept or argue for the government to regulate our individual conduct in regards to our debt, it is a worthy lesson to understand the risks of overextending yourself. And our younger generations could certainly use more lessons on this topic, as could our government. Also, important in the Middle Ages was self-sufficiency. It, in and of itself, has value. 
You cannot and should not count on someone else to do for you or take care of your needs. That is not to say that society should not care for those unable to care for themselves, but that as capable individuals we should expect and be prepared to be self-sufficient. The Middle Ages most certainly had some ups and downs, and periods that highlighted the greatness as well as the flaws of us as people, but it is part of our history, and it is instructive for our present and future. The Middle Ages was not lacking for advancements, including many men known as the late scholastic thinkers, who are now credited with providing economic theories that may have formed the basis for Adam Smith's more fully developed view of economics, credited with be the fa- being the foundation of the very free markets we value today. But before we get there, there is an explosion of art and science as the world enters the Renaissance. What followed the Middle Ages contains years of great growth for Western Europe. The years of the 14th to 17th century, known as the Renaissance, were not without conflict. All periods of human history are filled with conflict. But this time period in the history of Western civilization found people more inspired to explore the worlds of science and to become more intellectually curious about many subjects. Development of the printing press allowed exploration by more people into the history of Rome and Greece. It is this time period that provided us one of our most valuable educational resources, books. Inspired to think more deeply about all that is involved in the world and life, secular and religious thinkers alike were able now to pour over the details of history to rethink the human existence. Arts flourished. Copernicus opened our eyes to astronomy, and a fact today taken for granted that the planets actually revolve around the sun. Galileo improved telescope technology for use in scientific research, and Sir Isaac Newton opened our eyes to the laws of physics. Of course, religion still played center stage as the Reformation occurs during the Renaissance, splitting Christianity into two camps, the Catholics, loyal to the Pope in Rome, and the Protestants, or Reformers, inspired and led by Martin Luther, whose Lutheran church split from the papacy in protest of the wealth and corruption of the church as directed from Rome. More religions split off from the papacy, as this time period sees the creation of the Presbyterian Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, and John Calvin's Calvinist Church. Rome did respond, and attempted to correct some of the identified corrupt actions in what is referred to as the Counter-Reformation, but it was not enough to reunite all Christians under the papacy. Religious conflict was the result. The control over Western civilization by Rome was at an end, and Western European nations were growing in power as separate entities. And perhaps no more valuable to these budding nations was the new desire to explore untapped lands, to go beyond their current borders. It is for this reason that the years 1500 to 1800 are often called the Age of Discovery. It is true that the exploration and often conquering of these new lands did not come without some conduct that would be considered unacceptable and barbaric today. But without this exploration and the sharing of the West's advanced intellectual and scientific knowledge to these other parts of the world, it can only be presumed that those areas would have continued, as they were, to lag behind Western advancement in a way that would not have led to the long-term success of their people. Further discussion can be had about the treatment of Native Americans after the discovery of America and through our founding in a later episode. But at this point, it is key to understanding that this drive to look externally came from a continued evolution of man to seek more and more knowledge about the world around him. The age of discovery was a clash between old and new worlds. Whatever opinions one has of how the expansion of Western civilization took place, it cannot be argued that the civilizations of Western Europe were not far ahead of many other civilizations in understanding of concepts of physics, medicine, and astronomy. For those who think otherwise, it would be an interesting exercise to ask how many would prefer to live as those less advanced societies did, or how they likely would have been living had they not been introduced to Western ideas. 
This age of discovery also included the voyage of Magellan, providing the evidence needed to those holdouts to confirm long positive theories dating back to ancient Greece that the Earth was round. In ancient times, very complex considerations such as the reflections during lunar eclipses and mathematical calculations led to that conclusion, but it couldn't be physically seen or proven. Though amazingly, there are still apparently groups of people who think the Earth is flat, when it could be confirmed through a trip around the globe of the true nature of our world, man had made yet another giant leap in understanding it. Up to this point, Western civilization often changed as the power of governing shifted from nobility to clergy to appointed or born rules and back again. Despite the Greek and Roman efforts at self-governance on the Greek side and the rule of law on the Roman side, it seemed that in many ways our advancement in science and arts came with a regression in concepts of freedom and individual rights. It is now that the West enters its period of absolutism and enlightenment in a continued quest to get out from under the absolute control of a single ruler. It is also this time period in history that immediately precedes the times of revolution in France and America. Christianity and Islam continued to be at odds. The Ottoman Empire continued to pose a threat to Western Europe, and more and more focus was turned toward expansion to new lands. All the while, civilization was accumulating, or at least some members of it were accumulating, more wealth. Citizens were starting to question monarchies and the concept of absolute rule over them by some divine ordinance. If the ruler was only answerable to God, he or she need not care what those ruled thought of the monarch's actions. This kind of attitude began to garner hostility. And the world's thinkers were attempting to identify not only what could be known, but how knowledge should be discovered. Philosophers posited different theories, all aimed at figuring out the purpose of existence, or at least the purpose of man's life. From René Descartes' view that reason should govern intellectual exploration of existence, to Francis Bacon's contrary position that the senses should be the primary method of learning, the Enlightenment is a period of opening civilization's thoughts to things greater than themselves and the present. It is also during this time period that political philosophy evolves in a form that will ultimately lead to many of the principles espoused in our founding documents. Understanding this time period and its push away from rule by monarch helps understand what our founders were seeking here. Indeed, our founders were well-versed, as should we all be, in the writings of Montesquieu, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Adam Smith, and David Hume, along with the criminal law theories of César Beccaria. Without these and many more, it is unclear how ideas about government and the rights of individuals may have developed. Why is it important to know this information about the origins of Western civilization? Does it really matter if the younger generations know anything about what improvements the Romans made to farming or what Greek governance contributed to our own representative democracy? To begin with, without these prior civilizations, ours would not exist. But now that we are here, perhaps more importantly, it is necessary to know how we got here, both to appreciate the progress made and to work toward even more advancements as man continues through the years. A lack of appreciation for the progress made leaves little incentive to be a contributor to the next new idea in technology, or the future amendments to self-governance, or the continued improvement of techniques in all of our daily lives. Without an understanding of the Crusades, for example, and the link between so many religions and Jerusalem, one could hardly begin to understand any of the conflicts or even the issues during times of peace that often plague the Middle East. Without knowledge of the vast expanse and role of the Roman Empire played in development of regions across Europe and Asia, the influence of the Pope cannot be appreciated. If a student of life does not realize how far man has come in understanding, scientifically and philosophically as well as religiously, his surrounding environment, 
How can you truly posit any position or policy related to climate change or endangered species or space exploration? From the revolt of many against Rome's tax policies as the empire faltered, we learn a lot about economics and human nature. Without a study of the rise of different religious sects, we cannot understand the cause of conflict that exists by one's very sense of purpose and eternity being challenged by another. War is an ever-present part of human history and the human story, but if you don't know the cause of conflicts, how can you hope to avoid them in the future? And if you don't know what military mistakes led to the collapse of past war efforts, how can you, when war becomes inevitable, avoid those mistakes for your own military members and citizens? And it is not just political issues that can be viewed in the light of history. Modern medicine is an ever-evolving science. COVID-19 was not the first pandemic, nor was it our first experience with a coronavirus. Experiences like the many plagues in Europe in the Middle Ages, smallpox in later centuries, and the 1918 Spanish flu all provided insight into what measures work, both in terms of societal acceptance and medicine success. And isn't an individual's experience with any particular subject just that individual's own history, without which that individual would not have the background to make decisions and provide advice on any topic? That is the same for the larger history of society. Today's issues are just those that remain unsolved from yesterday, or that arise only because of what occurred in the past. It's important to understand them in the context of history. As always, thank you for listening. History is important. It is necessary to know what was done and to learn from it. It is important to recognize that mistakes were made and always will be. And it is critical that we strive not to repeat those mistakes that can be wholly avoided if we just take the time to appreciate where we've been already, where we are now, and where we have to go in this great nation called the United States of America. Knowing what what greatness men have achieved before us is humbling, and it is illuminating to understand our place in history. But we will never provide valuable contributions to our own story if we do not know about the past. Alexis de Tocqueville was a student of history, and he aptly summarized what the leading thinkers of the Renaissance and into the next period of revolution understood from their own history and the current status of divine rulers. Rulers who destroy men's freedom commonly begin by trying to retain its forms. They cherish the illusion that they can combine the prerogatives of absolute power with the moral authority that comes from popular assent. But as history has unfolded through these periods, popular assent waned, and with it came more complex thoughts and understandings of man's natural rights and the role of government. The next episode will continue this multi-part series, Exploration of History, as we move into more modern times to understand all we have to learn from those who have gone before us. Next stop is the era of revolution, and particularly our own, the American Revolution, As it does take time to prepare these episodes, because summarizing any historical period in small enough bites to be presented in this podcast is a bit challenging, please be patient if episodes are not published every week, though I am going to strive to do so, as I help us make our way from history to today. Until then, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share this podcast with just one person, we can continue to further the entire purpose of it to encourage real discourse in society about the state of our nation and the world. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2022.